tell you a little, a little of the history. I moved to Minnesota. You've heard of Minnesota? It's in America. Uh, in 1970. And at that time, we had just bought a big house. We thought it was a mansion. It had about 30 rooms. And we had Shabbatons and programs. Came the summer, and the town empties out. Teenagers are off in camp. The university is closed. It's a commuter college. And um, families are away in their, in their uh, lake houses. And we have this empty building. So we're thinking, what should we do? At that time, there were two yeshivas that were started for men. One in uh, New York and one in, in uh, Karachabad. And we were thinking, jokingly, who are they going to marry? So we thought, you know, we have to make a yeshiva for women. And from that joke, we sent out a flyer to six campuses and invited college women to come study. The plan was that we have a day camp in Minnesota and we bring uh, yeshiva girls from Brooklyn to be the counselors. And the day camp ends at around four in the afternoon. So we thought, this is 1970, we thought college women will come. They'll do a little shopping in the morning, a little sightseeing. They'll sleep late. It's vacation time after all. And then at 4 o'clock, we'll have some classes, and then we'll have dinner, and that'll be the day. Anyway, we sent these flyers to six campuses, and 18 women showed up. These women were all former SDS members. Yeah, SDS <laughs> SDS was a violent activist program that occupied campuses and burnt down. <laughs> they were the ones who were determined to stop the war in Vietnam. They were, they were intense people. And of course, it all failed. The whole thing failed. They couldn't stop the war and they couldn't change the universities. So by that was through the 60s. By 1970, they were frustrated and angry. <laughs> and disillusioned, and they walked into the Chabad house in combat boots. I I'm talking literally. They stormed into the place and said, what do you know? <laughs> what do you have to offer that can change the world where we failed? They were scary women. <laughs> Intense. Angry. They heard the plan but they're going to do a little shopping, sightseeing. Oh, no, not these. They were not into that at all. And so by, without any plan, without any, uh, without any warning, I ended up teaching them. My grandfather heard about this. He had a few things to say. You're teaching women? This was a little unheard of. But the day started at 9 o'clock, and it ended at 7 o'clock in the morning, around the clock. I slept on the carpet. Two hours later, started again. They, they were completely, um, I don't know, like, like a bottomless pit. They wouldn't quit. 
questions and, and, and discussions and debates, and it was really intense. And it was all about social justice, the industrial military complex, the corruption of government. I got an education that summer. By the way, I had never spoken to a girl before in my life. <laughs> so I got a real education and I figured, oh, now I know what the world is all about. Now I know what students are interested in. And by the end of the summer, I was ready for the next session. <clears throat> the next summer came and I knew all about social activism and the corruption of government and so on and so forth. Nobody was interested. 102 women showed up. Nobody was interested in politics. They had all just come back from India, from Tibet, from Japan. They were sitting in weird positions, meditating, humming. <laughs> and all they wanted to know is, what does Judaism have that Buddhism doesn't have? So that summer, I got an education on Buddhism. <laughs> Anything you want to know about Buddhism, you ask me. Tibetan Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism. So I figured, okay, now I know. Yiddishkeit, Lahavdal, compared to other religions. The next summer, <laughs> nobody was interested. Nobody was interested in politics. Nobody was interested in Buddhism. They wanted to know, how could you eat tam-tam crackers? It's not healthy. Where's the seaweed? <laughs> Where's the carrot juice, the macrobiotic foods? We had five kitchens going. They had me convinced that I have to drink carrot juice. You know what happens when you drink carrot juice? You know? Your palms turn orange. Not from handling the oranges. From the inside. Your palms turn bright orange. Anyway, every summer, and then every winter, we had a winter program, the topic changed. What was interesting and important, feminism, and the next summer or the next winter, not interested. Gone. It's over. The only thing that remained constant was, of course, family. If the conversation was getting a little uh, draggy and all I had to say was, you know you're going to grow up to be like your mother. Whoa, that, that always started. <laughs> so when it came to family, I mean, it makes sense. We're talking to women of marriageable age. Family of origin and marriage and starting your own family was always a hot topic. And the confusion and the pain and the misery that goes on in family life is just, it's just horrific. It's, it's, it's terrible. Uh, we, then, we then started a separate program for teenagers, teenage girls, and to hear what goes on in the families. <clears throat> These 15-year-old girls are growing up on their own. <clears throat> it's almost like parenthood is over. Nobody has parents anymore. You grow up on your own, despite what your parents do, despite what they did to each other, and somehow these girls manage to remain human. And it's really very, very impressive. I try to imagine, you live in such a world, and you know what I'm talking about, you live in a secular world, how do you get married? How? 
you meet somebody, you know nothing about them. People ask me, you have arranged dates. What do you talk about on your dates? What do secular people talk about on their dates? I go out on a date, I say, um, so which yeshiva you want to send our kids to? <laughs> you go out on a secular date, you say, you're not a serial killer, are you? <laughs> I'm just checking. <laughs> I mean, you believe in having children, right? And maybe not. You believe in marriage being monogamous or an open marriage? You want to do a trial marriage? You never know who you're talking to because everything is possible. So you got to start really from zero. And then how do you ever know? If the guy is a serial killer, or would they tell you? On the second date? <laughs> In a traditional community, you got on a date that's like, what, what don't I know about her? You know everything before you even go out. So you can say, so who's your favorite singer, Avram Fried or Mordechai Ben David? And that, that's the big issue. And you debate that. And if you can agree, you get married. <laughs> Avram Fried is my brother, so I have a little bias there. So, what, what, is, what is this whole marriage business, and how do we go about it, and what does it really mean, and so on and so forth? Okay. Let's start from the top. Let's go right to the top. It is assumed, in most, most theories, most circles, why did God create the world? What motivated the creation of the universe? And the most popular answer is kindness. God is good. He wants to do good. So he created the world for our benefit. So it's an act of kindness. According to the Zohar, according to the Kabbalah of the Arizal, the six days of creation are the six divine attributes. So the first day is Chesed, and the second day is Gvura, and the third day is Tiferes. Which means, literally, that on the first day, God created kindness. Can be understood in two ways. Oilam Chesed Yebana means the world was created out of kindness. Or it means, according to the Zayhar, for the world, for the Olam, chesed yibana. For the sake of the world, God created kindness. Not he created the world out of kindness. He created kindness for the world. If he created kindness on the first day of creation for the world, then what motivated creation? You can't say kindness, because kindness was created as part of creation, not as the motivation for creation. So what motivated God to create a world? Mm. The Medrash says, 
God created the world because he had a passion. <clears throat> God had a passion for a home in the lowest world. He created the lowest world, which is us, because he wants a home made out of the lowest creation, that the lowest existence should become the most comfortable for him, where he can be expressed completely. To facilitate that, he created kindness, and he created judgment, and he created compassion, and he created loyalty to make the plan work. But what is the plan? To have a dwelling place, a dira b'tachtenen. To have a home in the lowest world. Let's put this in very practical terms. It is a mystery. Even after all the explanations, it remains a mystery. The first words in the Torah can be studied and pondered for eons. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. That is such a mystery. That is such an amazing statement. God, who is infinite, perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing, and so on, so on, so on, he created a world? Whoa, we need commentary. Why? Why in the world would a perfect being create a mess? This is a mess. Why? How does that happen? Imagine a man says to a woman, please marry me. You got to marry me because I can't live without you. <laughs> good line? Not so good. Because, <laughs> first of all, you're lying. You've lived 25 years without me. Don't tell me you can't live without me. And if you're not lying and you really can't live without me, you're a sick man. And there's no way I'm marrying you. <laughs> there was a comedian. She disappeared. I don't know what happened to her. It was very funny. She says, I don't trust men. I learned you can't trust men. They never do what they promise. I had a boyfriend. He said if I left him, he would kill himself. So I left him. Can't trust men. <laughs> so if a guy says, I can't live without you, liar. You're not a liar? <laughs> You're very sick. <laughs> Go for therapy. But would it be better if a man says to a woman, please marry me, I can live without you. I'm just being honest. You know? <laughs> Now, how romantic is that? <laughs> so what's a man to say? So write this down for the next time you go. What a man should say is this. Please marry me. I can exist without you, but what kind of life would that be? I can exist without you, but my existence wouldn't have a content. My existence would be empty. That's basically our predicament. We all exist separately. Men are men, women are women, 
and we exist better without each other. You may have heard about this. Men and women don't get along so well. It's been, it's been proven. <laughs> For the last hundred years, we're trying to get along. We can't get along. A man and a woman don't get along. They go for therapy. What are you going for therapy for? You're normal. A man and a woman who do get along need therapy. Because either he's not really a man, or she's not really a woman, that something's wrong. Because men and women don't get along and are better off without each other. I'm sure you've discovered that. I mean, you've heard the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Enough said. You don't need the rest of the book. And if the rest of the book is going to try to convince you that you could get along, don't, don't believe it. We're from different planets. We're not getting along. So our existence, men are much better off without women. And women are much better off without men. So what's marriage? Our existence is healthier without each other. But without each other, our existence is bare. It's empty. It's sterile. We get married not to make our existence better, because marriage kind of destroys your whole existence. You get married because your existence needs a third dimension. It's two-dimensional. Without marriage, your existence is fine, but pointless, empty. So in addition to existing, you also have to get a life. Marriage means, let's make a life together. I can exist better without you. I know that. Because together, we, imp we impose on each other. We infringe on each other's space, on each other's time. Our existence is not improved by marriage. But it's a, it's a justified sacrifice, because in exchange for a loss of the comfort of your existence, you gain a life. Actually, that's what every mitzvah is all about. Honor your father and mother. What do you get? Live long. What does it mean to honor your parents? It means sacrifice a little of your existence to make their existence a little more comfortable. Carry their bags, bring them the food, help them on with their coat. That's the mitzvah. It doesn't mean agree with everything they say. It means honor them by serving menial tasks to make their existence easier. And what do you get in return? Long life. That's Every mitzvah is that way. Tzedakah means you take a dollar bill that is good for your existence. It just helps you exist. You're not making a living when you make money. You're making an existence. You take a dollar bill that is good for your existence, you give it to somebody else to make their existence easier, what do you get? Life. Tzedakah tatzel memavas. Every mitzvah brings you life because every mitzvah means you're giving up a little of your existence in order to have a life. So you say, please marry me because my existence is fine but empty. 
I need a teichen. I need content to my existence. Where do we get this from? What makes this true? We're created in God's image. When God created the world, he was basically saying, I exist fine without anything. I can exist forever and ever without creating anything. And creating you is not going to improve my existence. It may even make me miserable. But I'm going to create a world so that my perfect, infinite, eternal existence will have some life, will have some content, will have some substance. And what is that substance? A relationship with his people, with his children, with his world, with his creation. So when God creates the world, he's basically saying, marry me. I have a perfect existence. I can exist and I have existed and I will exist with or without you. But my existence needs supple. That's what marriage means. So the, uh, the punchline, what exactly is it that God is saying to us when he brings us to Harstinai and he gives us the Torah and he makes himself vulnerable to our free choice. We will either follow him or not follow him. We will either fulfill his purpose or not fulfill his purpose. What exactly are we hearing if we listen carefully? God is saying, I want to have you be mine. If love will help, if love is useful to make that relationship happen, I will create love on Sunday. And if discipline or judgment is helpful to keep the, the, the relationship strong and well-defined, I'll create judgment on Monday. And if compassion is helpful, I'll create compassion on Tuesday. So what he's basically saying is this. I need you in my life. <coughs> Love is necessary. I'll, I'll, I'll find some. I'll create some. I'll invent some. Compassion is necessary. I'll invent it. I'll create it. I'll find it just so that we can be together. That's our definition of marriage. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the traditional idea, you get married and you grow to love each other. You don't have to love each other in advance. What that really means is, marriage is not an exchange of emotion. I love you, you love me, let's get married. That idea went out the window a long time ago. And it was a, a ridiculous idea to begin with. Tell me what the logic is. I love you, you love me. Well, then let's get married. How did you make that leap? I love you, you love me. Leave it alone. <laughs> what else do you want? No, if we love each other, we should get married. Why? 
What's the connection? There was that old song, love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. What a ridiculous notion. First of all, who's the horse? <laughs> the muscle is not exactly flattering, you know. A horse and carriage go together well? The horse doesn't like the carriage. <laughs> Never wants to be hitched to a carriage. The carriage doesn't want anything at all. What, 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 kind, of, what kind of a muscle is that? There is no connection. There is no connection between love and marriage. In fact, here's the most important thing I can tell you. If you already love her, don't marry her. It's too late. <laughs> don't marry out of love. That's Hollywood, Madison Avenue, Michigas. It's, it's ridiculous. Love out of marriage. Don't marry out of love. Don't marry the woman you love. Love the woman you marry. That's called marriage. Did God create us out of love? No, that's frivolous. That's frivolous. And if he created the whole world out of love, what's going to happen when he stops loving us? For very good reasons. Then what? It's all over? How many times did the Torah tell us, God was angry, but he forgave us. God hated us, but he couldn't get rid of us. We're sinful, but we're still Jewish. No matter how bad you are, God still wants you. What does that mean? It means that there's a bond between us that is much more real than love. Much more important than love. In fact, love isn't important at all. If you want to describe love, important is not the right word. Love is not important. When someone is important, you ought to love. What is the mitzvah of You have to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You see how important love is? <laughs> no. That's how important God is. You have to love every Jew like you love yourself because love is so important. No. Then you're in love with love. You have to love every Jew because every Jew is important. And what's important ought to be loved. And if you don't love him, he's still important. So start loving him now. And if he's not important, then no matter how much you love him, he's still not important. It is so narcissistic to think, if I love you, you become important. It's like, I, um, I, I make you important with my love. I empower you. And then when I fall out of love with you, you're dirt. You're clutter in my life. It's horrible. Love is not important. Love is the proper feeling for those things that are important. But what makes them important? Not your love. So we have to tell every 11-year-old boy that the brother he hates is still more important than the dog he loves? Because they don't think so.
In that classical case, you know, if your brother and your dog were drowning, who would you save? They'll save the dog. Because they love the dog. They don't love their brother. So did God create the world out of love? God forbid. Because for most of our history, we haven't been so lovable. So it's to our great comfort and good fortune that we were not created out of love. Love is not a condition for our relationship with God. And that's why no matter how bad things get, no matter what sins you've done, no matter what sins you're committing, you're Jewish and God is stuck with you and will never give up on you and will fight you until the end and you're going to be together forever. Because love is not a condition for the relationship. The relationship is unconditional. So here's, here's an interesting way of thinking about it. What is unconditional love? Everybody wants unconditional love. It's a mishigas. Unconditional love is stupid. What does it mean? Love me unconditionally. You love me? Uh, is that real love or just unconditional? If you love me, that means I'm lovable or you love me because it's unconditional. It, it makes no sense. You love someone who is lovable and you don't love them if they're not lovable. So what does unconditional mean? I don't know, in, in secular, non-Jewish uh, vows at the wedding. For better or for worse, we will love each other. Are you kidding? What kind of... I am in love with you because you're wonderful. And I promise you, I will love you even when you're not wonderful. Well, then I don't know what love means anymore. You're going to love me when I'm not wonderful? It doesn't make sense. I'm marrying you because you're lovable. And I will love you even if you're not lovable. It's, it's nonsense. Unconditional love is a misnomer. This is an unconditional commitment. Because whether I love you or not, you are mine. So we'll work it out. When I don't love you, we'll fight until I love you again. That's called unconditional. Like with your children. You love your children all the time? Don't lie to them. When they are not lovable, you don't love them. So do you throw them away? Of course not. They're your children. So their existence in your life doesn't hinge on a mood or a feeling, not even the feeling of love. It's much more real than that. So, Tevye asks Golda, do you love me? She says, what? <laughs> for 25 years I've uh, cooked for you, I've washed for you, I've never... What is she saying? She's saying laundry is more important than love? <laughs> She's saying, I'm yours. I'm your wife. Isn't that much more important than love? And if that's not love, then what is? You want a little romance? That's frivolous. You want a family. You want a wife. 
You have a wife. What do you... Don't be childish. By the way, when you ask God to bless you with, uh, with a shidduch, basically I speak to women. I've told women many times, they say, I daven and I daven and I daven. I'm looking to get married in years and it's not happening. Why isn't God listening to me? I said, tell me exactly how you daven. What exactly do you ask? And they say, I tell God that I want to meet somebody. Say, so you did meet somebody. He answered your prayers. You asked God that you want to meet somebody? You've met a lot of somebodies. So why don't you say what you mean? You don't mean you want to meet somebody. They said, right, right, right. I mean, to meet somebody special. Say, can't you talk straight? You want to meet somebody special? Is that what you want? Tell God what you want. Say to God, please, this time next year, I want to be living in my house with my husband pregnant. Now you're talking. <laughs> and if you don't mean that, then why should you meet anybody? Especially somebody special. We're going to meet somebody special if you don't want to be pregnant by this time next year. So speak honestly. It's like, <coughs> if you want to be rich, you daven and you ask God for a job. You don't want a job. You want to be rich. Be honest with God. Don't play games. Say, please, Abishta, give me a good job. You don't want a good job. You want to be rich. Say so. Don't ask to meet somebody. Somebody special. You've met somebody special. She's married. <laughs> this time next year, you want to be settled into your new family. That's talking. One more piece of practical advice. If you really want to get married, if you're thinking about marriage, put it on your calendar. Schedule it like you do with anything else. If you plan to do something, you schedule it. Take out a calendar and mark your date. Wedding night. <laughs> June 15th of this year. And the next date you go out on, you take out the calendar on the first date. You take out the calendar and you say, I'm scheduled for June 15th. <laughs> People are busy these days, you know, you got to schedule things. So you say to the girl, I'm scheduled to be married on June 15th. Are you free? <laughs> if she says, of which year? Call it off and go home. Not for you. If she says, uh, that's amazing because I'm scheduled for June 18th. You can negotiate. <laughs> but if that happens, is that not a match made in heaven? 
I say this to women, and they say, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. You tell a guy you're ready to get married, they run away. That's the point. That's the first benefit. The first benefit is you get rid of the guys who have no intentions of marrying you and will not lead you on for three years and then tell you that they're not interested. Get them to run away fast. Don't waste time on these. So mark your day. I want to be married by, by Pesach. I want to be married by Rosh Hashanah. Make it real. If you're not planning to be married by Rosh Hashanah, then you shouldn't be thinking about marriage at all. It's premature. Wait until you're ready, and then think about it. And then, what are you going to think about? Who do you want to marry? What kind of woman do you want to marry? How should, what should she look like? What should she be like? I got to tell you something. It's too late. Your wife already exists. She's already been chosen. She's already been appointed. She is your wife. You just don't know her yet. So what are you worrying about? What are you worrying about? When you meet her, you'll marry her because she's your wife. Say, yeah, but I want somebody tall. I want somebody blonde. I want somebody... It's too late. <laughs> she is what she is, and that's who you're going to marry. It's bashert. It's destined. It's been decided. She already has an address. She already has a phone number. And she looks like what she looks like. And that's who you're going to marry. The Shatzen set up a guy with a girl in California. The girl comes back after the first date, not interested. Why? He's going bald. Not interested. Okay. The Shatzen finds another guy who she thinks would be a perfect match, but he's already bald. So she says to the guy, go out with this girl. I think, I think you're very well suited for each other, but don't take your hat off. <laughs> anyway, they go out. The shatran calls the guy afterwards and says, how did it go? He says, very nice. Want to go out again? Absolutely. Oh, by the way, <laughs> you told me not to take my hat off. I forgot. I took my hat off. She said, oh, God. that's it. You blew it. Out of responsibility, she calls the girl. She says, no, so how did it go? She says, great. What? She says, yeah, good. Want to go out again? Yeah. Even though he's bald? The girl said, he's bald? <laughs> she didn't even notice. The one you're meant, and they're married. The one you're meant, the one you're meant to marry, you will not see anything wrong because that's yours. And the one you're not meant to marry, even if there's nothing wrong, you'll, th you'll see things wrong because it's not for you. So stop worrying about who you're going to marry. This woman said to me once, I'm trying to get married. I've been looking, I've been trying. Where are all the guys? I said, come on, that's not nice. It's none of your business where all the guys are. You can't marry all the guys. She said, no, no, I mean a guy. I said, you haven't met a guy? <laughs> where are you living? She said, I mean, I mean, 
someone special. Never met anybody special. She says, the one for me. I said, whoa, we've come a long way. <laughs> we start off with all the guys, and now we're down to the one for me. In other words, you're not looking for a man at all. You're looking for your husband. That's a different story. You're not looking for a woman. You're looking for your wife. Because she already exists, you just have to locate her. You lost a rib, you got, you got to find your rib. That's it. It's your rib. You're going to find her, you're going to marry her, and that's it. So stop worrying about who you're going to marry. Worry about how you're going to marry. What kind of family do you want to create? What kind of a life do you want to live together? What kind of a model are you going to be for your children and for your wife? How is she going to respect you for the rest of her life that you're going to live together? These are thoughts that are necessary. And that's what people used to worry about. What kind of a life are we going to create? Who are you going to do it with? With your wife? So how does it work? I love you, let's get married? No, that's not the way God works. God created the world because he wants us to be his. And if love is useful, he created love. Compassion is helpful, he creates compassion. So really what we should say is, please marry me. And if I have to, I will invent love. I'll steal it, I'll borrow it, I'll get you love. That's not the thing. I need you, not love. So now, to sum it all up, a man says to me, I'm getting divorced. I'm getting divorced. Why? I don't need this. I don't need this. I said, you're married to a this? You don't need this? What about your wife? Do you need her? What's a this? Love is a thing. Love is an agenda. I'm looking for love. If I'm not getting the love I want, I don't need this. That's not how you get married. You marry a someone. You married her, not a this. So what do you mean you don't need this? It means you never really bonded with her. You never really even contacted her. You thought you were getting this, and it's not the this that you want. You wanted a this, and you ended up with a that. What about her? You marry her. You don't marry a this. You marry the person. And if that person needs love, then get some. If she needs money, you're going to get that. So along with the money, get some love. If she doesn't need love, fine. It's the loyalty, it's the oneness, it's the ahdus. So, are we Jewish if we don't love God? Are we his chosen people when he doesn't love us? Yes. The nature of love is that it comes and goes. The nature of marriage is that it's permanent. You combine the two by finding the person you're going to marry 
And then if love is necessary, you find love. That's the, that's the model that God gave us. The bottom line in Torah and Mitzvahs, God needs you, obviously, because he created you. You didn't create him. God came down to Egypt to take us out of Egypt and bring us to Har Sinai. He needs us. He came to us. By the way, that's why we refer to God as He. Why do we give Him the masculine position, the masculine role? Because He proposed to us. He initiated the relationship. You know, we were busy building pyramids. And he came to us and said, no, no, that's not for you. Come be mine. So because he creates us, because he chooses Avraham and says, come with me to my land, because he chooses Avraham's children and says, be my people and I will be your God. Because of that, we find God irresistible. How can you refuse that? So nobody asks you, do you love God? The question is, how are you responding to his initiating this relationship? God comes to you and says, I need you to be mine. What's What's your reaction? What's your response to that? That's your neshama. When when you respond to God's gesture, to God's need, that's your neshama talking. If you're looking for what you need from Him, that's just your brain talking. Anybody can do that. And everybody does do that. And everybody's brain comes up with a different answer. What do people want from God? You know what the Muslims want? But they can't what they can't have here, they want there. What do the Christians want? We know what they want. But that's all brain work. I don't want to suffer. I want to have pleasure. I want that's just your mind. When you respond to him, when you respond to his need for you, that's your neshama talking. And that's what we mean. Ivdu es Hashem. Serve Him, not ask Him to serve you. That's not Yiddishkeit. That's just religion. We don't want from God. We want to do for God. And that's why we're not excited about going to heaven, even if it's going to be Gan Eden. Because in Gan Eden, He serves you. We don't like that. I mean, for a month, that's nice. (laughs) Two months, maybe. After that, you know, enough already. (laughs) So, in the Jewish way of thinking, heaven is like a retirement home. (laughs) They take care of you, they take good care of you, they give you a golden watch. We don't want to retire. We want to be able to do for Him. And that's only here where you can do mitzvahs. So, we don't want to go to Gan Eden. We don't want to die. We have no intentions of dying. So don't tell me that I'm going to do mitzvahs because of what's going to happen in heaven. I ain't going. I'm staying here. Of course, if I can't stay here, I might as well go there. But that's not, it's not exciting. 
what's the, oh, the expression, he's in a better place. When somebody dies, that's not Jewish. You can even hear it from the tone. He's in a better place. See, that's Christian. <laughs> we don't sound like that even when we do say it. He's not in a better place. There is no better place than where you can do something for God. And in heaven, you can't do anything for him. He does everything for you. Which is fine for a while, but uh, you can't stay there forever. So all the souls in heaven are waiting for Mashiach. So that they can come back and do mitzvahs again. So we serve God by responding to his need, to his gesture, to his reaching out to us. That's not a religion. That's... That's marriage. That's a marriage. You're mine, I'm yours, let's try to get along. We don't get along, try a little harder because we're stuck with each other. He's not going anywhere, we're not going anywhere, this is permanent. So you might as well love him. <laughs> he might as well love us. And if he doesn't, that's fine too. He's my God, for better or for worse. And I'm his for better or for worse. That's the real thing. Make sense?